0: Sports science and integrating technology has become a mainstay in modern physical therapy and performance training. Many of us struggle deciding what is meaningful and best practices for incorporating the information. In this episode, I am joined by former NFL Director of Rehab and current owner of Seattle Sports Institute in Physical Therapy, Shireen Mansouri, who helps us navigate this exact dilemma. Let's do this. Welcome to Finding Small Wins. My name is Adam Lyakino and I'm a physical therapist in the NBA and a former performance coach in Major League Soccer and the National Women's Soccer League. The purpose of this show is to have conversations that pull back the curtain on sports. And we're here to learn how we can upgrade our health and performance and shed some light on how industry leaders and experts are finding the small wins that help them along the way. In this episode, I'm excited to introduce you to Shreen Mansouri. Shireen has a forward-thinking mindset when it comes to physical therapy and rehab sciences. By formal education and training, Shireen is a doctor of physical therapy who has completed both an orthopedic residency at University of Southern California and a sports physical therapy fellowship at Duke. During her time at Duke, she worked closely with men's basketball and was able to learn from the legendary Coach K during her time there. Professionally, Shireen is the current founder and owner of the Seattle Sports Institute and in Physical Therapy in Seattle, Washington. She has experience working in the NFL as a director of rehab and has continued to serve as a consultant to various NFL and NBA teams. What I enjoyed most about this conversation is Shireen's perspective on sports scientists, or as she refers to it, rehab scientists. She has a great understanding of data collection, data hygiene, and finding ways to make the data meaningful and applicable to what coaches and therapists need to do. Now, let's jump into this conversation with Shireen Mansouri. Hey, Shereen. Thanks for coming on today. I know we've been meaning to catch up for quite some time now. So I'm just excited for us to finally get together and chop it up and learn from one another and really just share some perspectives with our audience here.
1: I'm excited as well. It's an honor to be here. I've been following your podcast for quite some time now. So it's very full circle to be on it.
0: Wonderful. So let's, let's start from the beginning. If, if we zoom out here and take a quick 10,000-foot view of who Shireen is and how she got to where she is. you know What was your entry point into working with pro athletes?
1: Oh man, I would say my entry point into professional athletes felt like it started during my time at Duke basketball. I mean, I know that's NCAA, but there's nothing about coach Mike Krzyzewski, probably one of the greatest coaches I've ever worked with, that's not professional. He ran that team like a professional NBA team Everything about him is professional. He instills professionalism into me at a very young age. Um, and so I'm so fortunate to have had that experience. And there's a reason why he will go down as one of the best coaches in, in NCAA, but also as for USA basketball. So I would say my professional career with athletes started at Duke with their basketball team. And then from there, I went on to work a short stint in the WMBA in my hometown in Seattle, Washington.
0: So I just have to, I'm really curious when you get to be so close to someone of such great uh, stature, um, experience, like uh, one question I'm just curious about, like, was there any like piece of advice that he routinely said or that really like hit home for you that just kind of resonated throughout your career?
1: Coach K already had a winning organization established. And so my job was not to come in and reinvent that wheel, but to come in and implement the skills and assets that I had uh, in his winning organization. And so he gave me the freedom to do that as well as the head athletic trainer and the head PT at that time as I was, you know, the, the D1 fellow. Um, so I'm really fortunate for that opportunity to work on the men's side of things as well as the women's side. So just being able to come in and implement the skill set that I had learned during my residency and my doctoral training in physical therapy.
0: So what like that you bring up, um, a topic I'm curious about is fellow fellowship, right? For some of our listeners that are familiar with physical therapy, we understand what fellowship is or doctors, you know, they have their fellowships. So could you briefly touch upon what a fellowship is and then what value that brought? Because I often get in my space, the question I get is I didn't do fellowship. So the question I get is, should I do fellowship or should I not? If I want to work in sports, So, I'm always curious with people that went down that route, um, what it was like for them. So just to bring it full circle, what is fellowship and what value did it bring to your career?
1: Sure. Let me dial it back a little bit and explain why I did the fellowship before explaining a little bit about what it is. My journey was a bit unique and everyone has a different avenue. For me, I was a walk-on athlete to the University of Washington women's basketball team. Um, So I didn't have an opportunity to study athletic training. And as you know, as an athlete, you either get to be an athlete or you get to study athletic training. You can't do both. And so from a very early stage in my career, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to be dual credentialed as an athletic trainer and then go and get my doctorate in physical therapy. So after my years of playing basketball, I decided, well, I know I want to work with elite level athletes and I need to make sure that I cover all of my bases so that I can get to where I want to be. And so for that, for me, it meant pursuing a residency and a fellowship. And I wanted to make sure at that time that I was doing the strongest residency and the strongest fellowship in the country. And so I chose the orthopedic residency at USC, where I really kind of took myself out of sports for a year or so and focused on mastering my skills in manual therapy, manipulation, mobilization, soft tissue, biomechanics, etc. cetera. And after that, went on to pursue a Division I sports fellowship. My fellowship at Duke was mainly in the training room working with, I think it's 32 of their different intercollegiate teams with a focus on football and basketball.
0: That's quite the journey. Okay. So that, that provides some context as to why you went that route, because everyone has their own stories, how they got to where they were, which is always fascinating about this industry. And I would imagine in other industries too, everyone has their own story. So I appreciate you, you sharing that. So it kind of leads me to the, the next point I want bring to bring up is you had some great experiences working in the NFL, a sport that I've never worked, nor do I intend on going that route just because, man, it is just absolute chaos and triage in in that sport. So could you talk about briefly, like kind of overview of what your role was working in the NFL? And then as you break it down from there, some of the key roles that you may have had there.
1: Yeah, similar to you, I never imagined myself working in the NFL. It just kind of happened. I had come back to Seattle, worked a short stint in the WNBA I was doing some consulting for Catapult Sports and was giving a presentation and got recruited um, by the Philadelphia Eagles during one of my presentations. So, um, you know, that role that I specifically took with the Eagles, it was a leadership role. And so... My job at that time wasn't really to be in the trenches full time in the training room, but more so to oversee the long term rehab of our injured athletes, including a 53 man roster plus 10 practice squad guys. And then relaying that information to upper management on a bi weekly basis. And that meant discussing the progress or, in worst case scenario, lack of progress with athletes to our owner to our general manager and our head coach. Um, and so it really taught me high-level communication skills on, on how to communicate player availability for roster building every week.
0: So working in a sport of contact, right? What, was the, what were some of the, uh, the big injuries you might have saw or the, the, the differences from your time working in basketball to being in football?
1: It's extremely different. Um, and there's no denying that right? I mean, these guys are like gladiators. And I really came to appreciate their toughness and their ability to perform and show up on Sunday, even if they're 51% okay. Um, I learned really quickly that, you know, not to say this doesn't happen in the NBA, but in the NFL, I learned quickly that we don't strive to make sure guys are feeling what we want them to feel 100%, but they're going to go even if they're not. Um, contractually, it's different as well, right? There's a lot less guaranteed money. And so, you know, guys are often playing through quite a bit of injuries. So I have so much respect for those for those players. It's almost like running a hospital and triaging for five days until the next game, because really you only have five days, sometimes less, to get the team ready for the next game.
0: So I would imagine as a practitioner who is very detail-oriented and has experience in the sports science world, that putting athletes in a space of not being at their 100% may have been more challenging. So how did you manage that dichotomy of wanting them to be a hundred percent, but the reality is the business of sport and what they need to do might trump some of that. How did you balance those two?
1: Sure. You know, as a doctor of physical therapy, we all take an oath to keep our athletes and our patients safe and to not be negligent. Um, and there was definitely a learning curve where I had to, it is different than basketball. And I had to learn, Hey, a guy's going to go if he, is 80% or 85% in certain situations, certain situations like a concussion or a soft tissue strain where, you know, they're at risk for pulling a muscle off a bone. Maybe they won't go. The most important thing I learned is one, to weigh your risks and benefits, two, collaborate within a team setting so you're making a collective decision, and then three, listen to your athletes because they often know their body best.
0: And how about the athletes that didn't know their bodies best? How did you help them out?
1: Relying on my team. You know, someone really early on in my career told me, you're only as good as the people that you work with. Um, So stepping back and making sure that we're always making a collaborative decision because these decisions are extremely important, whether or not your top quarterback or your top receiver is going to play. And I don't think that that's a one woman or a one man show or decision to be made. Um, so collaborating with the team and then also listening to the athlete, hearing their perspective and coming to a compromise for sure.
0: Now, How about now this, this day and age, there's a lot of athletes have their own entourage outside of the team. Was there any situations where you found yourselves trying to manage not only your expectations and your teammates' expectations, teammates meaning your other practitioners with you, in addition to the external resources that may or may not have existed then?
1: In Philadelphia, in particular, I can't speak for every every state, but there were a lot of resources um, that guys had access to, and if they were working with those outside people, credentialed or not, they trusted them. And so, you know, the promise I was made to myself and to upper management was, I want to create an environment where we can collaborate and invite some of those outside practitioners into our facility, whether their physical presence is in our facility or we're communicating with them on a weekly basis to help optimize the recovery and performance of our athletes. So, you know, I signed up for it to work in the NFL. And I think in order to do that and be successful while working with elite athletes is you have to do everything you possibly can to help them in the facility, but then also respect some of the people that they really trust outside the facility and collaborate with them.
0: Yeah, that's great advice because I hear too many times, uh, not that 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 trust and, and relationship for in-house. or quotations here in-house and out of house uh, they butt heads a little bit. So it's it's great to hear that you took that approach from a collaborative collaborative perspective. Excuse me, there—that's a tongue twister. Um, so then, moving on to kind of like diving in a little bit deeper, right? So working in the NFL, working as director of rehab. Broadly speaking, what were kind of the big rocks to how you'd approach rehab and working with football players.
1: With every athlete, whether it be the NFL, the MLB, NBA, all the letters, I always try to take a top-down approach. And maybe that's because as a former athlete, anytime that I got hurt, if I was spending time on the treatment table, I wanted it to make sense as to how does this translate over to who I am as a point guard on the core and, you know, the strengths of my game, whether that's shooting, explosiveness, defense, et cetera. And so as a therapist now, I try to take that same approach. So if an athlete goes down with an injury, probably the first thing I'm always doing is looking at film. What's, how do they move? What are their biomechanics? What are their biomechanical breakdowns? Or what's their mechanism of injury if it was a contact injury? From there, I'll then take it to the weight room and look at, okay, what are their functional primitive movement patterns? How do they move at slow tempos, such as, you know, what are our primitive movement patterns? A squat, a step up, a hip hinge, um, a deadlift, et cetera. And then from there, I'll go to the impairment level on the treatment table and look at, okay, what do things look like in the open kinetic chain in terms of mobility, isolated strength, joint arthrokinematics, etc. And then I start the rehab process from the bottom up. If I'm treating at the impairment level, how does that translate over to the weight room? And again, how does that translate back onto the core or feel? So if I'm ever doing something on the treatment table, say joint mobilizations to maximize hip internal rotation over the next two weeks, I don't want that athlete to just think, okay, we're doing this because it feels good and it warms up my body and now I need it. But I also want him or her to think, okay, I need this hip internal rotation because I'm a no, I know I'm a two or a three shooting guard. I got to run from perimeter to perimeter and I need that internal rotation to efficiently decelerate, change of direction as best as I can.
0: Love to hear the systems approach that you got going on there. So it was wonderful. It's like I heard a lot of different things that I want to kind of pull back a few of those layers because I'm always just curious, like how other sports are going about doing it. and also just other practitioners, right? So I kind of heard like manual therapy, training, exercise. How, how are you, right? There, there's, let's just hit pause real quick. Like there's always a Twitter battle of like, oh, manual therapy, exercise, like load it, you know, load it is the only way to go, right? There's all these different methodologies, but you and I know it all works at some level. How are you integrating the different means of, let's say, manual therapy, exercise, or training?
1: I think the beauty in the residency and the fellowship is they give you so many tools to put in your toolbox. When I went to USC, they didn't say, we're going to teach you the USC way of doing things. And same thing at Duke. They weren't like, this is the way that Duke does things, and this is how you should do it for the rest of your career. When I was at USC, they exposed you to Mulligan, to Maitland, to some of the Australian approaches, et cetera. And they put all these tools in your toolbox. So if you're a student listening to this and you're thinking about residency or fellowship, the beauty of it is you're going to come out of it with less of a paycheck initially, but you get so many different philosophies ingrained into you you as a practitioner. So now when I approach it, I really listen to the athlete and figure out, okay, what approach that I know in my toolbox is going to benefit this athlete and match their philosophy best. And so just being able to be dynamic in your thought process, I think is key instead of just having one way of doing something.
0: Finding what works best.
1: Right that answer. Yeah, hundred percent. <laughs>
0: absolutely. There's there's no right answer. It's just we're, we're It's just like I'm curious like the thought process, right? I'm curious like how how you do things because like I, I imagine this scenario happens, right? Someone goes to a weekend course. They they just want to come. Okay, what's the tool at the end that's going to work, right? I think there's this era of practitioners where the critical thinking is often lost because there's so much Instagram exercise hey do this if your front of your knee hurts hey here's this manipulation if your neck hurts and it's just isolated interventions not so much you don't you don't see what you just talked about because you can't put it in i don't know how many characters that exist on twitter or you can't put it in a 60 second reel so i'm just i'm, I'm curious as to how people are going about things and then ultimately it's it's putting the pieces of the puzzle together because that's what we're all trying to do. So then like you hit on a few different things. There's how like residency, how some certain methodologies happen. So if you were to give someone an elevator pitch and say, Hey, if you have an athlete on the table, right. And there's all these different things that you're going to do, right. How are you illustrating to them the journey of rehab and how it all makes sense?
1: I think it's going back and watching film and watching film with the athlete and identifying, okay, this is what you do really great. These are some of the breakdowns or Maybe there's not a breakdown yet, but as a pro athlete, you're really great at compensating. And so let's fix some of those tools. The athletes there because they either they love their sport. So if you can start by just watching some of that film and the way they move on the court or field or pitch or whatnot and gain that buy in. And then again, from there, take it down to more functional movement patterns in the weight room on to impairment level things on the treatment table, I think you're really going to get more buy-in than just starting at the treatment table. Because oftentimes, as you know, I knew for myself as a physical therapist prior to my residency and fellowship, I felt really comfortable on the treatment table. I felt really good doing acute care rehab, but I hadn't established that um, skill set of being a performance physical therapist that can really see an athlete through their entire rehab spectrum from acute care to back on the court doing high-velocity, high-risk movements of their sport.
0: Wonderful. I love that. <laughs> so then if, you know, one thing, I think where we first kind of in, uh, met, met each other years ago was at, you know, Tenney's, uh Sports Science Conference, I think you, I think yeah. you had presented there, and I remember, you, I remember you lecturing on some data, some analytics, and how you were incorporating tech and let's just call it for lack of a better term, sports science, given the conference name, into rehab. So I'd love to to kind of go there with you because I think that's an area where most practitioners don't have exposure to, just because it's not present in a lot of general practices or in the education system. So I'd I'd love to just hit on the point of how are you incorporating tech and data into your day-to-day?
1: Well, first, as a disclaimer, I would say I'm not a sports scientist. You know, you and I, we're physical therapists by trade, but there's so much more as we get older that we do than just physical therapy. Um, So I'll start with that. Secondly, um, you know, Dave Tenney, whether he knows this or not, He's the GOAT. He it just changed the trajectory of my career and he made me become what I'd like to call a rehab scientist. I saw him at a really young age, um, or the first year of my career, I was working at the Starfire Complex, the same place that Seattle San Sounders were working out and training at. And I saw Dave implementing wearable technology to collect data on healthy athletes. And automatically my mind started spinning on figuring out, well, how can we implement these same systems to collect data on injured athletes to help objectify the rehab process? Because I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of PT school, it felt a bit subjective from some of the questionnaires we were giving athletes to pain scales, to, Manual muscle testing, like what's that, right? I mean, what's a 4 to you compared to an elite athlete? Not to say you're not an elite athlete, but, you know, it's quite subjective. And so I saw what Dave was doing, and I thought, what if we implement Catapult into the system? And so that's really where my journey as a rehab scientist started and my passion to objectify the rehab process for elite-level athletes. Because when it comes to elite-level athletes, there is little to no margin of error.
0: I love that. So how would you, I love, I love that you're calling a uh, rehab scientist, right? Was that the right word I, I said, sport, correct? I yeah. love it. I haven't heard that. I like that. How would...
1: I just made it <laughs> up.
0: <laughs> Even better. You trademark that here before you get off the show. Uh, how, how would you, I think the term um, across the industry is sport science and it's loosely used and not well defined. How would you define
1: sport science? A means to collect more signal than noise to help objectify the training load, both volume and intensity, of an athlete to minimize risk for injury and re-injury. And I think that's like fully translatable and parallel to to rehab. And that's part of the reason, you know, my journey through the residency and fellowship was really. Full circle for me coming from Dave and seeing what he was doing um, with Catapult, and then choosing USC's residency because, in my opinion, they had one of the top biomechanical laboratories where we could implement and I could learn more about not just kinetic sensors, but kinematic sensors and how they objectify uh, rehab in a lab setting. And then finally to Duke, where I was able to use some of those sensors back on the court and field with 32 intercollegiate level teams.
0: So then what would be, hmm, sports science, right? What would be someone that has no exposure to it? What would be the first step they could take towards starting to incorporate sports science into their practice?
1: Isn't there that acronym like KISS, keep it simple, sweet, (laughs) something like that? (laughs) I would KISS when it comes to to sports science. Um, No, in all seriousness, though, I would advise my younger self or someone that's, you know, just stepping into the world of objectifying rehab is write down the question that you wanna answer because there are so many different technologies out there all kind of doing the same thing, creating the same signal, but maybe having a little bit more, a little bit less noise than the other device. But write down the question that you wanna answer. And then work backwards from there. Start with one or two questions, find one or two devices that is going to help you answer that question. And then ask yourself, why? Why do you need to know that question? Is the team struggling with injury? Are you using it for research? Is it a question that upper management wants to answer? Or is this something that the athletes are particularly interested in?
0: I love that. The question, because it's, it's so true that there's so much tech and data out there that you can just get lost in the weeds on it and then not know how it's even meaningful or actionable. So like once you once you have that question, how do you make, let's just talk about kind of the process, right? Because you asked the question, well, there's gotta be some data hygiene and data collection hygiene to make sure that you're having consistent and accurate information. How do you go about making sure that you have, I like to call it hygiene in the sense that It's having accurate noise, so to speak, having accurate information. So how do you go about making the hygiene high quality?
1: I would tackle this question with two different components. One, there's got to be hygiene from the team. So you can have a very valid and reliable device, but you don't have buy-in from upper management the players so it doesn't matter how great your device is if you can't put the device on the player or maybe you can but upper management may not value it at that time in the season or with that particular team then there's no point right that you might you might not have a reason to to do it and the sustainability may be lacking so definitely think of hygiene in terms of is it going to fit in with the team culture and if not can you create an avenue for it and then secondly, you definitely need to do your research and find devices that are validated and reliable. And that was the beauty of what we did during our, my residency at USC is we took devices and we studied them in a laboratory setting during slow velocity movements. And then for those that were applicable, we would then go study them at during high velocity movements on the pitch or court or field. So you definitely need to make sure that they're valid and reliable and also fit in within your team culture.
0: Great, it's great point you bring up about the buying and the culture because I'm sure I'm just gonna. I'm sure you and I have been in a situation where we're implementing tech and the players are like, why am I even doing this? Right, like what's the purpose for this? Because there definitely was an era of collecting for the sake of collecting, <clears throat> but not having. A direction with, like you said, having a question. So I think that's a great point you bring up about having the buy-in from the culture. So then once you have the data, right, once you have the information you need, how are you making action items off that information?
1: I'm doing nothing at first, usually nothing for the first year. Because data collection takes time, right? And if you're the type of practitioner who sees a trend and wants to make a big executive decision off of, you know, a small amount of data, you're not being a great rehab scientist. It takes time to study these trends. And so the, for the first year or two, I'm really just collecting. And then the second, third, fourth year, we're kind of experimenting and saying, okay, what, based on what we see, are there changes or adaptability that we can make within our training load or volume, intensity, et cetera, to help minimize injury and re-injury? So my biggest advice is when you first start this process is to just collect the data over time, look for trends and then implement intervention.
0: So I'm going to be devil's advocate here because I hear that and I love that response. The challenge I face in my space and what I hear from others in pro space is when you have a high turnover of a roster, right? And you're trying to have consistent data based on let's say environment the people what you're collecting right there's so much variability in the nature of the environment and so much variability in the roster that you have that to that point of collect weight build a large sample size to create less use less variance sometimes that's like the pie in the sky doesn't always get there so how do you like what is your advice to those like me in my position Not having maybe the continuity of the person or the environment based on playing in 30 different cities across the country, having different roster year after year, right? How would you address that real factor when it comes to the data collection and use of sports science?
1: You make a great point that in professional sports, players are always moving around, right, from team to team. And so your window of time with them may not be three, four years. I don't know how it was or is in the NBA, but I do know in the NFL, the benefit is everyone kind of uses the same, um, you know, system, data collection system. And so if a player you know, came to us from another team and came to Philly. We had access to their data, and so the key in rehab or sports science, whatever you want to call it, is when you can always try to compare the athlete to themselves. Don't try to compare a quarterback to another quarterback, right? Um, and if you have their their historical values and what is their normal low, what is their normal intensity? What is their normal high-speed running? And what percentage of that are they doing during practice? You want to compare that athlete to their historical data.
0: So you just said a word there that's been a hot topic uh, exclusively, I mean, especially in the NBA, and I wonder if it's made headway in other sports. But the word load and load management, it's a word I feel like, it's a phrase that's been, I think, excuse my language, bastardized in mainstream media with a lack of understanding of what it actually is. So from your perspective, what is the value of load management? And also what is the downfalls of load management?
1: We know there's research behind, if we we break up load into volume of work and intensity of work, right? So someone can do a lot of volume, but the intensity is not that high. So the likelihood of maybe them getting injured is is not that high, right? Versus what if their load was quite small, but their intensity and their power output and their high-speed running was super high. Um, so we know that, in my mind anyway, I break up load into volume and intensity. We know on the core or field that peaks or changes, sudden drastic changes in load can lead to injury. And so the benefit of all this in sports science is to identify those peaks and valleys and minimize those drastic changes to reduce injury. The downfall to all this is that there's always going to be load outside of a team setting and there's always going to be confounding factors. What about sleep? What about diet? What about stress? Those are all load. That's load on a body or lack of load that, you know, we can't measure with a kinetic or a kinematic sensor.
0: That's a great point there. So from, let's just say all the noise that existed around load management this past playoffs and season that I kept seeing, what would you, what would be the advice for someone that's like in a tough space? Like, Hey, I'm trying to implement load management strategies. I'm trying to be evidence-based based on some research that's out there relative to acute spikes and injury risk. What advice would you have for them as how to approach load management in a season?
1: Gosh, I mean, it's just trying to do whatever you can to identify those variables, right? And to identify those acute spikes, whether it's sleep, whether it's food, whether it's blood values, whether it's volume and intensity of work. I think the more you avoid those spikes, the more you're going to minimize injury. I think there are times where it's really hard when players are playing like out of their comfort zone or whatnot during playoffs. And maybe that's why we see a lot more injuries during playoffs.
0: So then I got a question for you regarding around, let's just try to manage manage the load, right? We're, we're kind of transitioning here from sports science, analytic data to more of the bigger picture, overall load management. And in your, in your experience, what have been some of the most beneficial resources or tools to help mitigate risk or help enhance recovery strategies?
1: There's so many different recovery strategies out there. And again, it goes back to like listening to the athlete on, on what really works for them. You know, research might show that Um, An IV drip with vitamin D and vitamin B12 might be most beneficial if you pair it with a hyperbaric chamber within 48 hours of, of a game. But maybe the athlete doesn't want to do that. So I think it goes back to what is the athlete willing to do? Some athletes will sleep in a hyperbaric chamber all night and be totally fine. And some athletes don't want to do that. So listening to the athlete and figuring out what type of recovery techniques work for them. Um, and then anytime I'm in a team setting, I'm always collaborating and communicating with the other guys and women that are, that are experts in that, such as the performance staff and the data analytics staff and whatnot, and figuring out, okay, what are the best options as a team that we can offer in terms of recovery techniques? And then what are guys actually going to do? And if they can pick anywhere between one to two of those top five and help transition their central nervous system from sympathetic to parasympathetic in the shortest amount of time, then we're winning as a team.
0: I love that. So then from the tech perspective, right, you have had a lot of experience and you've alluded to some brands that you've worked with. Are there any techs that you feel, techs or certain modes of technology when it comes to data collection, sports science, load management that you found to be incredibly valuable and change the way you do things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. When I think about tech and objectifying my rehab, I think about how can I objectify rehab in a laboratory setting that makes sense from like a physio standpoint. And then what's the next step in terms of how do I objectify rehab while the athlete is moving at high velocity on the court or field? So in the lab, I love dynamometry, isolated strength testing. And then from there, I love to use a force platform where I'm looking at more functional strength, um, neuromuscular readiness, as well as rate of force development, right? Because a player can be really strong, but if they take a long time to develop force, then it might not be beneficial, um, you know, as a at further sport. Then from there, I love to use a, some type of kinematic sensor where I'm looking at movement quality, again, still in a laboratory setting, whether that's the weight room or a human performance lab. And that kinematic sensor can really tell me as a physio, what does joint excursion um, and angular velocity look like, lower body, upper body, while the athlete is moving. And then finally, some type of kinetic sensor that's going to be able to collect data for me while the athlete is returning to the specific movements on the court or field, looking at high intensity running, XL, D cell efforts, as well as asymmetries between the right and left side of the body.
0: Ooh, you just hit on something I want to learn about asymmetries. It's a uh, Yeah. There's so we know there's a natural human asymmetry, and then we can table that converse that topic for another another conversation. Uh, but with that, there's a lot of variance in how much asymmetry exists from person to person. So how do you address asymmetries or do you address them at all?
1: I do address them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if I have historic data on it, that's the beauty of sometimes working in a team setting versus private sector in the private sector. I may, my first encounter with an athlete would be when they're injured in a team setting. We may have data on them from when they're healthy um, or prior to their injury. So if they're, when they come to us, when they're injured and their asymmetries are larger in rehab than prior to their injury, we're going to want to clean that up as, as much as possible. Right. So I think that that is key, but then also keeping in mind that there are in sports, there are innate asymmetries that a two guard might spend more time on the side of a court than a three guard um, or a point guard may move differently than obviously than a, than a center. Um, and so there's going to be innate asymmetries in the sport in and of itself. And so I think as a advanced practitioner, rather than a novice practitioner, you're looking at that data and saying, okay, you know what, there is a big asymmetry here but it makes sense the demands that they have on themselves as an athlete on the border field.
0: Makes perfect sense. I get that. You brought up a good point of team setting versus private sector because right now you're primarily working in the private sector up in Seattle versus when you were your time in the NFL. So I'm really curious how you transitioned from what you were doing in the NFL and working in team sports to what you've been able to implement in the private sector, because I would imagine there's a lot of good things that you want to do, but you also may have some constraints being in the private space where you may not see them day in and day out. So, I guess my question to you is how did you make that trend? Like, how has that transition been? And how have you shaped your rehab based on the environment you're in now?
1: Yeah. So, Seattle's home for me. It's where I'm born and raised, but we all know in sports, we bounce around like crazy. Um, so, during the pandemic, I decided to come home and be close to my family and I started Seattle Sports Institute again for a second time. I originally started it in a tiny little closet space inside of a CrossFit gym. Um, It took off like crazy. um, And within one year I was recruited to the NFL. So I closed the door, moved out to Philly for a couple years. And then when I came back, I decided, okay, I need a bigger space. And the, the mission and the whole goal behind my business, Seattle Sports Institute at that time was to create a product and a place where athletes could come and that it was unmatchable in the Seattle area. And we've really developed it like a training room outside the training room where athletes can come and get the private care that they need. So, you know, believe it or not, we're not open to the gen pop yet, um, but it creates an environment where players can come and get the privacy that they need. And with that, being a concierge rehab facility, we've had the tools to um, bring on as much rehab science as we possibly can to help objectify this rehab. Because, you know, it's not the purpose of private sector in my mind is not to replace what the athlete does with their their training room environment, because most times their training room, they're, they're great trainers, they're great physical therapists. But having been in that team setting, I know that with a 53 man roster, especially in football, there's just not enough time in the day to spend two hours with guys. And so we have the beauty and the time and the space to do that. And so through that process, we try to make it as thorough um, and unmatchable for for our athletes.
0: I love that you replicated the training room outside of the training room. I love that phrase. You got to coin that. You got to put that on like your business card or something. How is up How have you? So like, I'm really curious, like, how have you been able, like, let's just dive a little bit deeper on the weeds of that as far as like, how did you create the training room outside of the training room?
1: I'd say one of the biggest values of Seattle Sports Institute and it, and it, it it's parallel to how I live my personal life is the privacy of, of the whole space. And because we haven't been open to the general public The number one thing we value, and the number one thing I think that the athletes that come and see us value, is the privacy in the healthcare. You know, most guys don't want to come to us and say, I tore my ACL. I think we should put it on blast on your Instagram today. Um, So I just think holding on to that um, is tough because we all know social media is just getting, you know, bigger and bigger, but our athletes really value that. So I think in and of itself, that that's the number one number one key value for Seattle Sports Institute.
0: Can we touch upon the privacy aspect, right? Because having myself been in sports for all of my career, um, I see people take, you know, first time clinicians come into the sports setting, not necessarily knowing how to manage the privacy. And now like you alluded to this era of social media, kind of got to be out, be aware of, let's just call for lack of better terms, the sharks that are looking to be a part of the space to elevate their own following, right? Like how important is that privacy and how can we educate those that necessarily don't know this space that well to be better at helping the athletes um, respect that privacy?
1: Every situation, as we know, is different. Some athletes... I think just understanding and learning and knowing, like, what does your athlete want? The best thing you can do when it comes to privacy versus social media is to ask your athlete what they prefer. I do think I'm biased. I do think that their athletes really value those that, um, you know, keep their life private, especially while they're going through a time of medical adversity. Um, But some may say, hey, I want to bring my camera crew in every single day and I want to film my rehab progress great, awesome. But I think the key is to give the athlete the choice rather than to make the choice for them.
0: Brilliant. You mentioned the medical adversity, which it's true, right? We are in a space where we oftentimes are with individuals when the times are tough or they're down in the dumps, right? How are you helping them find their small wins to continue to progress forward?
1: every athlete that comes into Seattle Sports Institute, I'd say like, and even in the NFL, like they're working with me because they're in the mud, right? They they have an injury. And of course, sometimes we work with players that have more like dings that, you know, just want body work throughout the the season. And, and that's fun and okay too. They're always welcome in our facility. But I'd say most of our guys have a major injury that they're working through. And so when they can leave, our facility feeling better than when they walked in, that that's a win to me. Um, I don't think, you know, whether it be the private sector or the NFL, like the wins don't feel that small. Even just like if they get people say one percent better. For me, it's like if they get 0.5% better, that's a that's a big win. Um, but I want to be remembered, you know, I want Seattle Sports Institute to be, and myself to be remembered as a place that makes people feel important because they are or that they matter because they are. Um, And I think in professional sports, as a clinician, people, these athletes have so much exposure to different clinicians and they may not always remember what we did for them, but they'll always remember how we make them feel. And so that, that to me is the win.
0: It's a great answer. It's because you're talking like you're talking to 360, right? Like you're not only talking about like just the day, the win for the day, but also like I love hearing that you you're thinking about the person too and just how they respond to the situation and the emotional connection that is there too. Because oftentimes that's underlying like the success of what we do from an X's and O's. Like if you can create that genuine connection and also acknowledge those emotions and tough times for them you're often in a better space to help them get to get them to where they need to be.
1: For sure. And I think a huge component to working in the private sector is empowering the athlete to um, have control over their own health. So if I was a really smart businesswoman, I would tell an athlete, that you need to come and see me seven days a week. And, you know, there's no exercise stuff that you can do on your own. You you just got to come and see me. That'd probably be a lot more lucrative. But, you know, as an empath and someone who cares about doing what's best for the athlete, you want to empower them to say, okay, hey, I'm not going to see you tomorrow. But it's really important like that you understand what you could do to help recover your body or do this type of anaerobic training or aerobic training. We need to hit these goals tomorrow and then come and see me the following day. So yeah, it's, it's important to to you know always do the right thing and make sure that you're making them feel important, but also empower the athlete to take care of their own health.
0: This is a fantastic point you bring up because at, at what point do them, when they become reliant on you, are you doing them... A disservice is the question I would ask. I think, yes, I'm here to help you. But if you have to lean on me that much, I question how much am I really helping you?
1: Exactly. That athlete should be able to perform and continue on a great career trajectory without you. As much as we want to feel important, the beauty in rehab is that they know where to find you again if and when they need you. It's not that they need you all the time in order to perform at a high level.
0: Yes, that is a hunt, ha- in my
1: <laughs> opinion.
0: <laughs> I'm sure there's a little bit of a bias there, but hey. <laughs> uh, so, like you, right? You've had a fantastic career so far, and it's going to keep going in a positive direction for you. You've been in a space of residency, a space of high performance in the NFL. You've been in a space of great sports science and research science, sorry, rehab scientists, and now running your own business, right? So to me, I hear a lot of exposure and experiences, which is incredibly valuable. So I think of we've been talking a lot about athletes and the specifics of rehab and whatnot, but I think it's important too to just highlight how much you've been around and seen such greatness around you too, even going back to your early days with coach K. So the question I have for you here is if someone was looking to make an upgrade or a positive change in either their lifestyle, their training, or they're even going to rehab themselves, what advice would you have for them?
1: Right off the bat, to the tip of my tongue, consistency. Every athlete that walks in to Seattle sports Institute, I can say like, they're great. They're cream of the crop. Um, And then of those great athletes, you get this like small section at the top that walk in every once in a while, every couple of years. They are great, they are elite, and they are consistent. They have a routine, and nothing is breaking that routine. And to me, those are the ones that I, you know, really find they're going to be in the league, whether it be the NBA or the NFL for a long time. And they're not really looking to see what the league can do for them. They're looking to see what they can do for the league. And they're going to leave a legacy behind through their consistency.
0: Is it fair to say that consistency is king?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. I would agree. It's like <laughs> for sure. consistency if were playing. I mean, I'm not a poker person or the, if, I was, if I knew a card game, because I don't play cards that much, it'd be the trump card. I feel like it would just be like, oh, you throw this down. Okay, game over. Winner. It's like, you know what it is? It's like can jam. If you throw it, if you throw it in the slot, it's game over.
1: For sure. I agree. Consistency is key. And LeBron.
0: <laughs> so then, like, right? I just want to wrap things up here because I just want to have a little bit of fun with you, right? Just kind of talk about some things. Yeah, right? Sure. So, you know, you being in the NFL, did you travel for the NFL?
1: I did. Yeah, okay, so I
0: Okay, so I love this question. Okay. And we're not trying to sell any city on one particular thing, right? No harm here. What was your favorite NFL city to travel to?
1: I would say I would say Los Angeles, not because it's LA and everybody likes LA, but because when Philly played the Rams, they were somewhat newer to LA, right? They were in New Orleans first prior. Um, so they had just come to LA. We played in the Coliseum. And we played them twice. We beat them twice, by the way. But to be two NFL teams playing in this old school coliseum, I just think it was epic. And we knew, like you know, SoFi hadn't been built yet, and this was going to be one of the last opportunities to play um, in the coliseum. So that felt really special.
0: Yeah, super nostalgic too, right? I think that's that's the that's the that's the, that's the yeah. cool that's the cool part about sports is you get to experience those organic yet nostalgic moments that you probably don't realize in the moment what you're experiencing and then you just like you just did you reflect back like wow that was actually really freaking cool
1: yeah for sure
0: now you don't have to we're not gonna throw anybody under the bus here Um, and we're just gonna say (laughs) one of the bottom three that was your least favorite to travel to and why
1: has nothing to do with the team green bay Terrible food. Oh, I'm a big foodie, so just wasn't. Aside from squeaky cheese, there wasn't a lot of food options.
0: Oh, there. I can respect that because uh, when we travel, it is where's the coffee shop and what are we doing for dinner. And so I can I can resonate with that. How about what was um what was one year besides the I think maybe already touched on the Colosseum, but maybe it's not the one thing, but one of the most memorable sports moments you've been a part of.
1: You know, just being a part of Duke and um, being there while Coach K won the last NCAA National Championship title, um, you know, that was something really special to be a part of and to feel like, you know, we we contributed to this, even as a fellow, you know, at the the fellowship level, you kind of feel sometimes at the bottom of the totem pole, but just feeling that, you what it takes to win and to have that high it's like an addiction and you want to go back and i remember when i was in philly one of our defensive linemen fletcher cox told me there's nothing greater than the feeling of the confetti you win the you win the super bowl and the confetti falls and it hits your skin and you lay on the ground and you do your snow angels and the confetti And I haven't done that yet, (laughs) but never say never. And I'm just so curious to see what does that feel like at the professional level? So he's definitely inspired me.
0: I love that. I have not experienced that either of him. I'm 0-2, unfortunately, in in finals. So hopefully that comes uh, sooner rather than later because I would love to experience that too.
1: Yeah, me too. We will.
0: I agree. I agree. Well, last one I want to ask you is you know, I often find myself having more small talk and actually talk therapy sometimes with the athletes as we go through rehab, and whatnot. Right. So we often have to be motivators too. So, one question I have for you is there an inspirational quote or a m- thing that you find helps motivate yourself as you work in this space?
1: Ooh, this is a great one to end on. I would have to say. A quote, never say never, because limits, just like fears, are often an illusion. Michael Jordan.
0: Love that. And with that, we are going to conclude and not even touch that one. So I really appreciate you coming on. This was fantastic. Uh, For our listeners, where can they find out more about you and the Seattle Sports Institute?
1: Check out our website, seallosportsinstitute.com. We also have an Instagram page. It's pretty limited. We're a small and intimate SSI family. But if you'd like, reach out to me on our social media or our website.
0: Perfect. Well, hey, thanks for coming on. I'm glad we finally got to sync up here and have this chat.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Finding Small Wins podcast you enjoy these conversations as much as I do, hit that subscribe button and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. To join our Finding Small Wins community, head on over to findingsmallwins.com. And for more information about me and my journey, please follow me on social media at adam.loyacono. Thanks again for tuning in. And remember, keep finding your small wins.